Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Coming up on today's show, the Fed's finally, for a lot of people, removing the PCR test requirement for people flying into this country. Calgary Council has voted to sync up the end of their mask bylaw with the province. We'll chat with a Calgary City Councillor about how they came to their decision. And are we too reliant on the Ambassador Bridge? All right, so uh, let's walk through some of the changes that are on the way. Uh, we talked about the mask bylaws. Looks like uh, Calgary's going to match whatever the province does. City of Edmonton says, yeah, we're not. We're going to keep ours in place until... We don't know when. There's no timeline yet. So, okay, we'll deal with that one down the road. The announcement that was made yesterday by the federal government, essentially the big overarching announcement was the fact that PCR testing for returning to Canada or getting into Canada is no longer required. Okay? You can get a rapid antigen test wherever you happen to be, uh, which typically is cheaper and obviously is much quicker um, uh, and easier. So that was a major consideration. It's not perfect, I don't think. I think most travel experts would say we want to see a little bit more, but let's find out for sure. We're going to chat with Darren Reeder, who's head of the Alberta Tourism Industry Association. Uh, Darren, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So yeah, the announcement yesterday, how do you feel about it overall? I mean, it's a step forward at least, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know what, let me give this analogy. If you're, we're holding your breath and waiting for restrictions to relax, and we're like an Olympic sport, I'm going to suggest that Canada just won a gold medal for its ability to hold on the longest. <laughs> uh, as most Canadians are aware, our country has been amongst the uh, uh, most uh, strictest uh, managed from a, a guidelines perspective through the pandemic, and this has certainly left our industry sitting at the financial precipice for two years. So it's a definitely a move forward. So we're grateful to the government of Canada, the leadership of our new tourism minister, Randy uh, Boisenau, uh, to begin to relax travel guidelines based on the science and available data. This is definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah, we know it had been a big push for a long, long time from groups like yours and airlines and all the rest. Um, but as you say, it's a step forward. What remains? What would you have liked to have seen done yesterday? Well, we would certainly like to move towards a situation where there are no restrictions. I mean, the notion that we are open for business is what is going to truly electrify interest in traveling to Canada. And policy, and, and, and I want to make this point, policy is only as good as the speed with which you implement and promote its benefits. And I, I want to make this observation, which is this morning going on to the CDC website. Uh, Canada still remains on the U.S.'s level four advisory list, yeah. list, which effectively is telling Americans to avoid travel to Canada. So I would observe that government has a responsibility to promote its own policies to our primary international trading partners as a matter of economic priority. So it's one thing to begin the process, but we need to let people were actually open for business. And I want to take this back to a, a study our national body, Destination Canada, did earlier last year on, on perceptions. And what we found even at the time, Shay, was that 56% of U.S. residents believed that there were COVID-19-related barriers to traveling to Canada. Only 21% of U.S. residents 
thought the majority of restrictions had actually been lifted in Canada. And more notably, only 27% believed the majority of Canadians had been vaccinated. So I would hmm. suggest that from a reputational, from a promotion standpoint, we have a lot of work to do. That work begins immediately. In terms of timeline, I imagine, you know, specifically for Alberta, this is probably the time of year when more people are traveling out of Alberta than coming to Alberta. So um, is, is it fair to say that you have a smaller window here before you really need to see all of this stuff ironed out? I mean, it would be great to have it in place now, but it needs to be done, say, in a couple of months. Well, it, it needs to be done immediately. Let, let's be honest. I mean, this is about trying to save another of two lost summers. And people are making their long-term travel intentions for 22 sure. right now. And there are other countries around the world that are open. They're wide open to receive people. So I think reputationally, from a brand perspective, from how the restrictions are actually moving towards serving the interests of the international visitors looking to plan trips, we need to communicate that right now. Otherwise, we're going to lose our opportunity to recover. And Darren, if you take a look at where we are with some of these restrictions, there's many other jurisdictions, most other jurisdictions, that don't have the same kind of rules in place anymore, right? I mean, we're out of step with the rest of the planet in a lot of ways. A hundred percent. No, I totally agree with that. And and that's a, a perception we have to change. I mean, a visiting public look for places that obviously reflect their own brand values, but it starts. I think it's always started, but certainly accelerated through uh, the experience of the pandemic, that health and safety will be a leading uh, consideration in decisions about where to travel. So again, this is about brand and reputation. Yeah. So one thing to say these are our policies, it's another thing to exuberantly promote them to the world. This is the work the government needs to begin aggressively today. And that would be at the federal level, the provincial level, all hands on deck, right? Everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Makes perfect sense. Darren, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. That's Darren Reeder, who is the head of the Alberta Tourism Industry Association. And it's groups like his that have perhaps been most vocal um, about this situation and getting it rectified. Just last week, um, there was a news release that came up by a group called the Canadian Travel and Tourism Roundtable. They also have a group of Canadian doctors on board with them, and they called for a removal of the, quote, obsolete testing practices that are in place at the Canadian border. They say Canada's current COVID-19 travel restrictions are obsolete and they are out of step with other countries worldwide, including United Kingdom, Switzerland, Denmark, that have all removed all testing requirements at their respective borders for fully vaccinated travelers, acknowledging a different phase of pandemic management. Air Canada put out a statement saying, we believe our country should align with the emerging consensus and adjust our policies to better match the diminishing risks of this pandemic. WestJet said travel advisories, restrictions, and testing requirements were meant to be temporary, yet our industry has now reached an impasse that is severely impacting the recovery of our airline and sector. So the pressure is definitely out there. And I think the question that a lot of these groups are putting forward, they aren't just saying, you know, it's hurting us economically. They're also putting forward the point that I think is... The determining factor in all of this is what are you hoping to accomplish? What is the reason for the actions that you're taking? Is it to stop the spread in Canada? You're, we want to try and keep Omicron or COVID out of Canada. Sorry, that ship has sailed. Um, so I, I don't. What's the what's the reasoning for this at this point? What are we doing that's so different from everybody else? Why are we doing it? So I think the Feds recognize that now, and they took the first step forward and the biggest step forward, removal of the PCR requirement. Um, but there's still much more that needs.
Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. To come. So we're talking about uh, the removal of restrictions and masking mandates, and there's a lot of things happening on that file uh, this week, and we'll continue to change and adapt and move uh, over the course of the next I don't know how long it's going to be, probably a couple of months at least. But um, interesting story out of Calgary yesterday. Basically, what they've decided to do there is to align the city's masking mandate with the provincial masking mandate, which to me makes all kinds of sense. But it was a couple of changes that had to be made. First of all, um, as you know, the province has removed masking requirements for anybody under the age of 12. Well, the city bylaw still said anybody two and over. So they had to make that amendment. The other one was, when does it end? You know, are we going to have a date, a set date? Are we just going to follow the province? So that was the other discussion. And and it took a while to get to a resolution, but in the end, they did. And to tell us how they got there, we're going to chat now with Ward 3 Councillor Jasmine Mian. Uh, Councillor, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate your time. Hey, no problem, Jay. Happy to be here. So this all started with, okay, we've got the provincial mandate and we know the goal is to get rid of it March 1st. What are we going to do with our situation? And there was there was some discussion in terms of we're just going to link up completely with the province. I mean, where did it start for you? What were the decisions that you had to make? Because there was a number of them yesterday. Yeah, yesterday was definitely a confusing day from a procedural perspective. And so although it looks like there was a 13-2 uh, decision ultimately to align with the province, there were two very tight votes yesterday yeah. um, that didn't really seem to make the headline but show how difficult this decision ultimately was. And so the first most controversial vote was to amend the current face covering bylaw and repealing it on March 1st and, and bringing it immediately in line with the province today for the children um, 12 and under that you spoke about. And that passed 8-7, so very tight. And we had seven city councillors there, in- including myself, saying, you know, today is only February 15th. And uh you know, by February 28th, we'll be in a much better place to determine whether ICU capacity is opening up and hospitalizations are, in fact, dropping. And we are asking the province to share their data with us yeah. so that we can make the decision to repeal. Um, and so as of yesterday, we just didn't really have the same information as the province and felt like there was time that we could get it. But that vote lost 8-7. Um, and I think we lost it primarily because our own city administration was advising council to align with the province 
simply because without that sharing of data, we're, we're left into the dark about what the rationale is. Because if you look at ICU uh, capacity, you look at hospitalization rates, they're actually higher than ever. Um, so that was a very difficult one. And in absence of, of the same data that the province has, nearly half of council felt that, hey, you know, we could still watch hospitalizations and make a later judgment call. But only seven um, out of the 15 councillors thought that and you need eight. And you know what, councillor, I think that's the key thing here. And, and you know, and I know councillor McLean, who sort of spearheaded this whole thing, his point was, you know what, the province has the information. We don't. We we can't make the decisions. We have, you know, he said AHS has the info, Dr. Henshaw has the info. They're making the decisions based on the info that we don't have access to. How valuable would it be for all of us, but especially people that are decision makers like yourself, to have access to that information that's guiding these decisions? Oh, it's absolutely critical because the information that we do have flies in the face of what the province is doing. And I think that that's what's confusing is that you look at the hospitalization rates, you look at the ICU rates, while they are trending downward, they're still very high. So something like a small intervention, like a mask mandate, which does really help with the transmission, um, it's hard to understand why they're going this direction. Now, if they have some information that shows something different and and why they're sort of changing their approach at this point, um, we would love to see what that evidence is. Because as a city council, I I think it's important people understand that this city council uh, prior to when I was elected opted to put the mask mandate in before the province. Um, So we always had some information on which we were making that decision and the province actually followed. And I think there was just a real debate as to whether we should align with the province right now from a pragmatic perspective or if we, you know, should wait until we have evidence to to leave that that policy space. Because I think one of the challenges is anytime you decide to play in a space and you make a decision to get in there on the basis of evidence, which is what happened with the original mask mandate, I think you should also have that evidence to then vacate that space, which we at this point don't have. And I felt that yesterday many folks were choosing to align with the province more out of um, pragmatism as opposed to public health. There's an argument to be made there, right? Uh, I mean, obviously, there is that does make sense in many, many ways. It's just a matter of trying to calculate what that risk may be. And again, with the lack of the evidence, that gets pretty difficult to do. It certainly does. And, uh, you know, I think what we need to do as much as possible right now is, is, you know, the province has said that they will not remove that mask mandate on March 1st unless, in fact, the hospitalization rates are trending downward. And so I think that we have to put trust into the health officials at the provincial level. And certainly as a city official, I'll be watching this very closely and advocating very strongly for my constituents that if the evidence does not bear out, um, that the province does not move ahead on such a fast timeline. Uh, Councillor, I really appreciate you popping in for a few minutes this morning. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. You bet. That is Calgary Council Ward 3 Councillor Jasmine Meehan sort of walking through the decision yesterday. So you got the two amendments. One is to get rid of that um, two and up age restriction and, and align it with the province saying 12 and up. Um, uh, so getting everybody on the same page there. And then the other one is saying, okay, well, the province is going to lift theirs. Let's lift ours when the province lifts theirs because they're the ones with the info. So, uh, and those votes passed. And as, you know, in the end, it came down to a very... You know, I think it was 13 to 2. But there was a number of procedural votes along the way to get there on this amendment and that amendment that were pretty tight. So it took a while, um, but that's where they got to. We've talked so much about the Ambassador Bridge over the course of the week. You probably know that it deals with 25% of all trade across the Canada-U.S. border. Almost half a billion dollars a day in goods. Um, We saw what happened with the auto manufacturing plants on both sides of the border basically being 
shut down or at least slowed down dramatically because um, they couldn't get across the border. So it really is important. But is it too important? Are we too reliant on that bridge? We're going to have a chat now with Dr. Ambrish Chandra, who is an associate economics professor at the University of Toronto. Doctor, thank you for your time. appreciate you joining us. Hi, Shay. Yes, happy to be here. So this bridge, um, obviously, it's it's pretty key. I mean, it's pivotal to that trade between Canada and the U.S. Twenty five percent. That's that's a ton. It is a ton. It's uh, it's we've been uh, we are so reliant on the ambassador, and we you know most of us don't th- think about it very much. But yeah, we it's it's a vital vital link for U.S. Canada trade. So let's talk about how we became so reliant on this bridge. Was it because of um, the way that, like the bridge came first, or we built the bridge to deal with the need? I mean, because which came first? How did we end up in this position? <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a good question. The bridge was built in 1929, uh, so it's almost 100 years old now. And it was built to facilitate trade uh, between Detroit and Windsor and basically between Michigan and Ontario, you know, because the automakers were setting up on both sides of the border and they needed parts to go back and forth. And so they needed a reliable, uh, you know, before the bridge was built, they, they used to ship goods by ferry across, you know, to, to connect the, the railway lines. Yeah. Uh, so the, the bridge was obviously way more, you know, way faster and more reliable. So, yeah, the bridge was built first, and then because the bridge became so important, we threw a lot of resources at it, you know, yeah. staffing, um, you know, on-ramps, warehouses, docks. And so, as a result, a bunch of other companies and other trucks started being routed through the Ambassador Bridge, even ones that weren't connected to the auto industry. And now we've ended up in the situation where it's, where it's a quarter of all of our land trade. You know, we t- we're talking about blockades, and we saw what happened for five or six days with uh, just a bunch of trucks being parked on the bridge. But, I mean, you're talking about a bridge. There's any number of ways that it could be shut down for much longer than five or six days. That's right. I mean, there could be, and, you know, we've worried about this in the past. Canada has been sort of crying, you know, out loud about this for years. Uh, it could be a natural calamity. It could have been, you know, a terrorist attack. It could have been anything, uh, you know, infrastructure repairs. I mean, these bridges are old. So we can't afford for a single bridge, which, by the way, is privately owned. We yeah. can't afford for a single bridge to be, you know, potentially shut down for weeks or months. Uh, so that's why we're building, and we've been trying to build for years, an, an alternative to the bridge right next to it, the Gordie Howe which should come online in a couple of years. But yeah, we're currently not in a good situation. Yeah, I mean, like there was lots of talk about, you know, especially with the Coots crossing, was like, well, just go to another crossing. You know, and then I know that a lot of people in Ontario said, well, we'll just go to the Sarnia crossing. But I mean, it's not that simple, right? I mean, we don't have the infrastructure that we need to just pick up the slack. And that's exactly right. For one thing, Ontario is actually separated from the U.S. by water on all sides. Yeah. So you need a bridge to get across, unlike the rest of Canada, which has land crossings and where, you know, a simple road or highway will do. So the bridge becomes choke point. But yeah, even Sarnia, which is two hours away, um, you know, you, you, it can't handle the, the volume of the ambassador. That's something like 3,000 extra trucks that will be entering at Sarnia every day. They, they just don't have the space, the manpower, the resources to handle all of that. I mean, they could handle some overflow for a while, but not all of the ambassador's volume forever. So what kind of risk does this put us at, um, not only domestically, but I mean, sure, there is a risk in terms of getting the goods and services that we need to cross that bridge. But, you know, reputationally and as trading partners, I mean, what kind of uh, position does this reliance on this bridge put us in? It's not great. Uh, And especially what just happened, you know, because we're sort of sending the signal that, you know, maybe can't, I mean, or at least people are, let's say, taking advantage of the situation, you saw some American politicians saying, well, we can't trust Canada to keep this bridge open, so maybe we should just, you know, relocate our, all of our plants 
or for production domestically. Now that's yeah. sort of playing to an audience, but it's you know the, the longer this kind of stuff goes on, if this sort of happen again, the more those voices will get louder and be heard. And also, it affects. I mean, when you're reliant on that, I imagine there's a tremendous amount of food that comes across the border that Canadians rely on, and medication, and all the, all those sorts of things. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of our fresh food comes across that particular bridge, and as I've argued, a lot of our trade, a lot of the trucks that are not even headed to Ontario, they're ultimately headed to Quebec or the Atlantic provinces or Manitoba, they're still coming through Ontario because we've got all this path dependence, because yeah. the ambassador can process so many trucks. This, this stuff headed for, you know, Quebec City that's sitting in warehouses in Windsor because and, and waiting across the bridge because it can't get over. So you mentioned the Gordie Howe Bridge in a couple of years. What else do we need to do? And are we doing it? Are we having these discussions and working on this? I mean, the Gordie Howe is obviously the first step, and yeah, we're just, I guess, working as hard as we can on it. I mean, I've argued that, you know, if we were starting from scratch, or if we were, let's say, redesigning our border crossings over a 20-year period, we wouldn't have them be so concentrated in southern Ontario the way they currently are. We would diversify, have more trucks go through Quebec, go through, you know, Manitoba, Alberta, even, you know, B.C., um, but it's it's very difficult to make that change because, you know, we're stuck in the system where everything is reliant on the Ontario crossings and it's all the resources and the manpower is there. And you can't just unilaterally divert the right. trucks somewhere else because, you know, that's where the companies are used to going. And that's where all the infrastructure to support them has been built because that's where they go. Exactly. Makes perfect sense. Uh, Dr. Chandra, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Sure. That is Dr. Ambrish Chandra, who's an Associates Economics Professor at the University of Toronto. And... Yeah, I mean, it has sort of exposed, uh, well, I wouldn't say a weakness, but certainly a vulnerability, you know, where we had that border shut down for, I think it was five, six days total, something like that. And, you know, you got 25% of everything that crosses the border from the U.S. into Canada goes through that one choke point. Um, And uh, we saw what happened, you know, with the auto industry and all the rest. So, yeah, maybe uh, it's time to take a look and say if we can do something else. But the interesting part is when you've got that bridge that's been there for almost 100 years now, right? Where is the auto manufacturing industry centralized? Around that bridge, right? Um, and that's where all the infrastructure is there because the bridge is there. So now if you go and build a bridge two, three, four, five, six hours away, it doesn't have all the supporting infrastructure. So will it be used? I mean, it's, it's a chicken or an egg thing really is what it is, but it's a fascinating uh, discussion. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.